Hello and welcome to the Movie Robcast. I'm your host Rob Daniel and as always I am very happy to say I am joined by my learned co-host Mr Rob Wallace. And as always it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Well today we are talking about the new Guillermo del Toro film Nightmare Alley. I'm a huge fan of del Toro. I think it's safe to say that you are a fan of his too Rob? Yeah I think yeah, I'm trying to think of how how to kind of categorize him without being reductive. Uh, for me, there's the immediate, in terms of filmmakers I love, the Gilliam comparison. But I think Del Toro has made certainly more good films than bad, or more good films than Indifferent, which I can't necessarily say for Gilliam. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. I love Del Toro's work. I don't think he's made a bad movie Pacific Rim, I think, is the only film of his that I was underwhelmed by. And even that has some absolutely glittering moments in it. Pan's Labyrinth, I think, was the best film of the noughties. Also, I think it's one of the great movies. So, yeah, so I'm very happy that we're going to be talking about his new film, Nightmare Alley, starring... It actually has an amazing cast. It's Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchett, Tony Collette, Rooney Mara, Willem Dafoe, Richard Jenkins. Who am I missing? Uh, Ron Perlman, David Stratton. Holt McCallan is in there as well. Mary Steenburgen's in there too. So the plot is about a drifter called Stan Carlyle, who's played by Bradley Cooper. It's set in late 30s, early 40s, depression-hit America. He joins a travelling carnival that is managed by Willem Dafoe, and Willem Dafoe plays a guy called Clem, who is very pragmatic and very at ease with the way that he can exploit people. And he has this thing called the geek. And that's the first thing that Bradley Cooper sees when he goes into this carnival. And the geek is basically a person, a down and out, a drunk, who is being kept to do acts of depravity that will bring in the pain punters. Stan finds that he has um, a bit of a talent for mentalism. So he can learn the tricks of the trade of mind reading. And he learns this from Xena played by Tony Collette, and her partner Pete, played by David Strathairn. Stan is also very ambitious and forms a bit of a relationship with Molly. It's Molly, who's played by Rooney Mara. And the world of the carnival just isn't big enough for him. So he sets his eyes on New York and really hitting the big time with his mentalism act. 
He then crosses paths with Kate Blanchett, who is a psychologist who suspects this might not be the supernatural ability that Stan says it is. And from there, there are many schemes and twists and turns that take us down some very, very dark roads. It's based on a book by William Lindsay Gresham that was written in 1946. Uh, There was actually a film that was made in 1947. With uh, Tyrone Power. That's right, yeah. And kind of ruined his career because he was playing against type because Stan is someone who is very ambitious. In this film, he's really enthusiastic and that kind of hardens a little bit. I watched the original Nightmare Alley earlier this week. It's just been released on Blu-ray. The Stan character in that is much more of a con man. Tyrone Power is very good in it, but I was reading that the failure of the film, of that original 1947 film, effectively ended his career. So, yeah, it seemed to be like a bit of a doomed project, which is ironic because this film also released in the States to underwhelming box office. I think it's going to struggle to get to $10 million and it cost $60 million. But in interview, Guillermo del Toro said, it's a $100 million movie that we made for 60. And it does look amazing, but has been a bit of a box office flop, which is a real shame because I think it's a great movie. But yeah, there does seem to be something about this story that doesn't seem to resonate with audience goers. And it could be that maybe it just looks a bit too bleak for these COVID times. And in 1947, it was just after the war and maybe people just weren't really into something that is quite a dark tale. But film noir obviously was doing very, very well in the late 40s. Well, so so maybe not. But sorry, go on. I mean, noir is obviously an innately cynical genre. And this film is, it's unusual for the Del Toro insofar as it's pretty much a refutation of the supernatural. It's about how an unscrupulous person can use someone's hopes and fears, as long as they've got an insight into human nature, can use those hopes and fears against you. And I can understand how audiences might struggle with it. It's quite a nihilistic novel that has translated into, as you say, cynical films. Yeah, it's interesting that, because it's one of those things where the original is just a film noir. This as you said, it seems to refute the supernatural and Del Toro's films are all about underworlds and fantastical creatures. I think there's some crossover still with his films in terms of, in Del Toro's films, it's typically the most well-tailored people are the villains and that certainly carries across here in terms of how some of the characters progress. Also, it tends to be that the humans are the bad guys and the monsters are the good guys and you can kind of say well it's the upper class here who are the real villains and like yeah the lower classes who do live in like a certain underworld because the carnival folk are always being rejected by society are kind of the good guys but even that is slightly muddied by the Willem Dafoe character who is quite a chilling screen presence. There was also something I thought in terms of certain characters do seem to almost have a diabolical air about them in terms of how they can do things but it's not supernatural yeah yeah and the fact that you know this film casts richard jenkins very much against type based on his role in um, the shape of water as this unethical man of power and influence who clearly is prone to violence del toro's films are all well to an extent about empathy understanding He cites the creature from the Black Lagoon having been a major influence on him in terms of relating to the monster. With this film, though, it's about how you can, as I said earlier, how that empathy can be weaponized or monetized, rather, and the dangers of that. 
Yeah, it's one of those, it's an unusual film for Del Toro in terms of the monster is kind of the lead at some points. And the reasons for that are because he is someone who can read people and knows what they want to hear and can use that to beguile them into getting what he wants. So what did you think of the film? Did you like it? I liked it. I didn't by any means love it. And what were the issues that you had with it? It looks amazing. You know, as you say, it is this film noir. In fact, I'm pretty sure there's a black and white version that's also been, you know, an, an authorised black and white version, if not preferred black and white version, that's also been doing the rounds. Oh, interesting. I've not heard of that. It looks amazing, you know, with the art deco and the carnival. I mean, the carnival as a location for Del Toro feels so natural for him, mm. I think. I do think the film is to a degree fairly nihilistic because the early sequences are largely about Stan, the Bradley Cooper character, learning the trade and learning how these psychics play the audience and all the, 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 the tricks of the trade, essentially. And I found that interesting from just a practical standpoint. But none of the characters are particularly sympathetic. They're all deeply flawed. Even the characters that you're meant to relate to or are meant to be are by no means, you know, quote-unquote, good people. And there is an arc to the Stan character, and there is like a hubris... It's a tragedy, essentially. But it's a tragedy in which I didn't find many redeeming features in in the lead, so it it rang a bit hollow for me. Oh, interesting. Would you say that the Rooney Mara character is not sympathetic? Because I think that she's... She's the closest for me, I think. I think she's the heart of the film... What are the ways that you would say she wasn't particularly sympathetic? I think she's sympathetic insofar as, obviously, you know, she falls in love with Stan. She's got an interesting, implied-to-be-difficult background. It has Ron Perlman as the kind of carnival heavy, who's clearly in a kind of surrogate father role to her. He's protecting her, he's looking after her, obviously, Ron Perlman, having starred in uh, the two Hellboy films. I think... She's ultimately, for me, was a more actually was more of an interesting character than Stan because she is somebody who gets swept along kind of by degrees. Her buying into, okay, we're going to trick people, but it's ultimately one of the rules as laid out by Xena, by the Tony Collette character, and by Pete, who's the David Stratton character, is like, you know, afterwards, if you talk to them again, you have to essentially tell them what it is that you've done. You can't just keep people on the hook indefinitely. You can't play with their emotions because it always leads to bad things. And I was like, I was interested how for the the Molly character, she essentially goes along and gets deeper into, actually, okay, it's fine to do this, it's fine to do this. Whereas with the Stan character, you never got the impression that he was really corrupted. You always got the impression that it was like, he'd kind of do anything. It just happened to him, you know, one step at a time. That's interesting. And one of the things there in terms of the dialogue in this film, I think a lot of it's taken straight from the book. Do you remember what they call it when they say... You can't trick them. You have to acknowledge that this is not real. You can't do a... And do you remember what they call it? Oh, um, spook show. A spook show, yeah, which I thought was great. You can't do a spook show. I thought this was great. I mean, this is one of the films where... I know that it's only January, but this is an early contender for top 10 of the year for me. Um, Hmm. I've seen it twice now. I saw it once when we were sent that link for the award screener and um, then got along to a press screening of it. I thought it was great the first time I saw it. On a big screen, it was just a joy to watch it again. It's long, it's two and a half hours. And I didn't have a problem with the length the first time I saw it. The second time I saw it, it did flow better for me. 
even though I didn't have a problem with the length the first time, I thought just watching the story unfold on a second viewing, it just felt much more organic. I really like film noir, and one of the criticisms of the film is that yeah, lots of people have said, you can just see where it's going. And it's like, well, but that's one of the great things about film noir for me is that there is, as you said, there's like a tragic element to it. There's also a sense that even though it's not the supernatural, that there are external forces of work that have damned a character. Or there's certain moral sense that's keeping the checks and balances that when the character strays outside of that, they begin to come into force. And part of why I really liked this film was just watching all the pieces fall into place over this really quite big epic story. I mean, the first half is set in rural America and it's all about the carnival. The second half is set in the city and the pace begins to quicken, but it's very, very claustrophobic and it's all lots of very tall buildings that bring a claustrophobia. But then also, for example, Kate Blanchett's office is just massive and cavernous, but it has this ceiling that seems to be pressing down on the stand character. So the production design in this is amazing. The cinematography is amazing, and it's interesting that there's a black and white version. I'd be interested in seeing it. But one of the things I liked about the film was that, although shot in colour, it made it seem as chilly as the starkest black and white. So I thought it was a very, very well-designed colour movie. I think I liked the stuff at the carnival more than I did the grander city stuff, in terms of his becoming this illustrious clairvoyant. At that point, it became a bit chilly for me. It lacked some of the initial character. And and I totally get what you mean in terms of there is always a degree of tragedy, of, of inevitability to film noir. I mean, partly, I think, because of the Hayes Code at the time. And because, you know, film noir is usually based around a crime. And the cinematic rules at the time said crimes had to be punished. So if you've got a protagonist who does something illegal, immoral, ultimately the story has to end with their comeuppance, which obviously, you know, also kind of plays into ideas of Greek tragedy. Yeah, well, I think actually there the... Because I think that the book is very, very close to the film, to this film. And I think that the book is actually drawing more on Greek tragedy than it is on the Hayes Code, because, of course, it was a book. It wasn't bound by Hollywood censorship. And that very rigid morality... Yeah, there's a certain pleasure in reading a character go through that and have to run those trials of being judged by forces that he's not aware of. It's absolutely fascinating to watch the 1947 version because the book was deemed unfilmable when it was published. But a year later, there was an adaptation. And it's interesting the way that it seems to soften, particularly compared to this film, a lot of what I presume is in the book. It's the same story, but it doesn't quite have that same bite of cynicism or or nastiness sometimes. It also has a different ending that is very, very much of the 1947 Hayes Code period Hollywood that did make me smile when I saw that ending compared to the ending here. And I would imagine the ending of the book, but if anyone knows that that's different, then just let us know. I've done a little bit of research about William Lindsay Gresham. And, you know, he's he's an interesting figure, the fact that he was fascinated with spiritualism and he was an early proponent of Scientology, though he later denounced it. Mm. At, at one point, he became involved in what seems to be a fairly elaborate menage a trois. But then in, in 62, which I think is about 15, 16 years after he wrote the book, I think he was, you know, he's he started to go blind, been diagnosed with cancer, and he checked into the Dixie Hotel in Manhattan, which apparently, which is where he'd written Nightmare Alley, and killed himself. He overdosed on sleeping pills. 
wow, a life that could be written as one of his books by the sounds of it. Yeah, and for, for me, I actually find that a more interesting story, horribly, than I think <laughs> I did with, uh, with Nightmare Alley. I think I'm drawn more towards the second half of the film, just go back to your point about liking the first half more, because I just do love the period recreation of New York and those wonderfully designed Art Deco offices. The Kate Blanchett's character's office in the original film is really, really pokey compared to this massive hall that she has in this film. And just that design I thought was great in terms of, yes, we are basing it on old movies, but we're going further than that into something that's actually quite fantastical. But the carnival stuff I really liked as well. And I was, I listened to an interview that Del Toro did with Simon Mayo, where he was talking about, they got a football field sized piece of land and they irrigated it so that water would run through it. So steam would rise out of it. And they built a full carnival, like a working carnival that they could shoot in. And the reason they did that was because he said, I've seen circuses on stages in films and they always look too cramped. And the whole point of this is that you have to see the vast open skies. And also the way that the wind moves through the tarpaulin of a tent just creates an atmosphere in of itself that he wanted to have as well. And that's the thing is that you do get the sense of this being a working carnival and it's muddy and it's a bit grubby, but... There is something to it that seems really authentic, including the fact that it's grubby and a bit kind of muddy. One thing I do really admire about this film, and, you know, Guillermo del Toro in general, is his love of actors. We've already talked about the primary and the supporting cast, but he's got some great character actors in, you know, often quite tiny roles. Yeah. He's got uh, Clifton Collins Jr., Tim Blake Nelson, Jim Beaver, Stephen McHattie pops up in it. Yeah. And also uh, Laura Jean Choristecki, who, uh, sorry, Lara Jean Choristecki. Do you remember, recognise that name from anywhere? No, what was she in? Freddie Lowndes in Hannibal. Oh, wow. I did not recognise her. Who does she play? She plays a character called Louise Hotley. I'm literally, yeah, I'm on the Wikipedia page now. And I vaguely remember seeing her in it. That could just be a trick of memory. I do not remember that character at all. Louise Hotley? No, I do not remember her. Oh, interesting. Oh, well, I'll go back and watch it again, which I definitely will do because I really liked it. She also has a, a supporting role in the new Jack Reacher series on Amazon. Oh, right. And I've not seen that either. It's not out yet. Amazon periodically send me what seem to be a fairly random assortment of screeners, screening links. Yes. <laughs> like, why why this one over anything else? Cool. I'm not With actual Reacher, I kind of watched it all pretty much in the space of a day. And it was really nice seeing her in it because she plays a very different character from Freddie Lowndes. Oh, Okay. In terms of this movie, I thought this isn't going to do the Shape of Water numbers even in the before times because it is a bleak movie. There is the pessimism of film noir just hanging over this. But I think it's going to be one of those like Crimson Peak, which was his ghost story that I also loved and was kind of rejected when it came out, but then built up a passionate fan base. I can see this film having a passionate fan base. Yeah, it will be interesting to see what the lifespan of this movie is because I can see it not doing a lot at the cinema but then being discovered at home. Yeah, that's one. I mean, I'm hoping... I mean, this is uh, this is being distributed by Disney so presumably it's going to end up on Disney Plus at some point. Yeah, it's a Fox Searchlight film, I think. Presumably at this point it will go straight to SVOD but this could have done well as a PVOD release. It always sounds a bit of a desecration, especially about the latest Guillermo del Toro film to say it should have been released day and date or not had a full cinema run before it went to Disney Plus. But this is one that, yeah, I don't think it necessarily has the wattage to draw people back to the cinema. 
especially, you know, all the box office dollars have gone towards Spider-Man and... And Scream. And Scream. And at certain point, you end up with films that are, you know, I I didn't... I will admit, admit, I only saw this on the screen link they provided. I haven't had a chance to see it on the big screen, which I'm feeling guilty about, especially since Martin Scorsese then, you know, recently tweeted saying everybody needs to go see see Nightmare Alley on a big screen because otherwise the pool of releases that are just Netflix movies gets ever larger. Yeah. Well, this was released on Friday and you've only just got back from a holiday, so you shouldn't beat yourself up too much about the fact that you haven't been to the cinema to see it yet. We are recording this on Sunday morning after the Friday that it was released. And just for any listeners who might not know, PVOD, Premiere VOD, where you pay to watch the movie at home, SVOD subscription VOD, where it comes free with your subscription. Just in case there's anyone that didn't know those. This is an interesting one because I kind of agree with everything that you're saying. They've released this in over 300 screens in this country, which is a big, wide release. And I think the reason they've done that is because it's Belfast and Nightmare Alley this week are the two big movies. Spider-Man is still bringing in the millions every week, but there isn't anything really for the grown-ups. And I think this is a really good start to 2022 for people who like grown-up cinema. So I'm glad that they've given it a big release. My fear is that grown-ups are reluctant to go to the cinema right now because of covid and the two and a half hour runtime of this movie is not going to do it any favors in terms of people thinking yes let's go to the cinema tonight so it will be interesting to see how well it does in this country because yeah i think it's currently at about nine or ten million in the states and it was released i think it was released before christmas so i think yeah part of the issue is as you've said in terms of spectacle it's competing with spider-man no way home as a drama now, I think it's competing with Licorice Pizza, the new Paul Thomas Anderson film. But again, that's had its time now. That's had a few weeks on release. And I think that that's going to be replaced by this because Paul Thomas Anderson, but this is the new film with Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchett. This just has bigger stars in it. I think that this is going to replace Licorice Pizza in terms of those big evening slots. So Licorice Pizza might still have an afternoon showing or something. But this will be the replacement for those who don't just want a superhero film. It will be interesting to see how this does as well. Because Licorice Pizza hasn't done amazingly well, I don't think, has it? No, I saw it at a preview screening. Really liked it, but didn't quite get the level of hype surrounding it. I mean, it's a new Paul Thomas Anderson film. There's always going to be hype surrounding it. I do hope that Nightmare Alley, even though I didn't love it, has the opportunity to be... I guess at this point, it's weird when a film's like three days into its release in the UK and you're already talking about it being rediscovered. Absolutely. I do hope it has got the opportunity to draw in an audience. I mean, at this point, it will probably be on Disney Plus within the next six months. Oh, easy. Definitely within the next next four months. It'll probably be April, maybe May. Well, Disney were the ones that really wanted to bring the theatrical window down to three months before they started doing other things with their movies. This might get a rental release... I think Disney are moving away from that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think what it is, is that this is going to be released on SVOD, on Disney+. Plus. You will be able to rent it on Sky Store and other places if you don't have Disney+. Plus. But yeah, I think you're right. I think they will just release it straight to SVOD. And it's a good business model because why would you rent this on Sky Store, you know, not to denigrate my former home, when for probably the same cost, if not cheaper, you can get a month's subscription to Disney+. Plus. Absolutely. It's, I mean, yeah, for like a couple of quid more, you can get that. 
The thing that I'm worried about is that this won't get a physical release because this is a gorgeous looking film that I would like to have in 4K with all the wonderful extras that normally come onto a Del Toro physical release for home viewing. Including, hopefully, the uh, the black and white version. Which well, yeah, I would watch indeed. it. I do want to see it again. Uh, if only because, you know, I, I think as you talk about the theatrical experience, it really benefits from seeing it in a cinema. I'm equally keen on seeing it in black and white because I think um, Fury Road, Blood and Chrome and other films like that, they're an interesting experience insofar as they don't necessarily supplant the original. Not at all. But in the case of this one, because it is a noir, a noir, God, I could sound like toast, because it's a film noir, um, (laughs) it could genuinely benefit from the black and white. Yeah, I would be on the same page with you on that. I think this would be interesting to see in black and white. It might work really well. I don't think that any of the black and white official releases that I've seen so far work i don't think the blood and chrome worked it just looked like they turned off the color or turned turned down the color the same for logan noir even the mist which was a very early example of that which came as a bonus feature on the dvd even that was like no the color version still looks better than this this is a film that i'd be interested to see if only because it's such a well-designed color movie and the color plays a part in terms of charting the rise and fall of a character that it would be interesting to see if anything is lost in black and white or, as interestingly, what is gained from it being in black and white beyond just looking a bit like a noir. Yeah, to your point, I mean, they probably will just put the noir version onto Disney Plus as well, but I like to own Del Toro's films because he always does great extras and there's just something about having a 4K version of something that you love that's like, yeah, this is what I want, rather than just having to rely on Disney Plus never taking it off their platform. So is there anything else to say about this from your end? What do you think about the Crimson Peak comparison? Do you think that's a fair comparison? Yeah, I say I I saw Crimson Peak upon its original release, really got on with it. We saw it together. Yeah, we did. Blimey. God. That's, I, and that's, I always do this. I always remember going to see the film and I always remember the event, the stuff surrounding the film that I do with the mate. I never remember which mate I go to see a film with. <laughs> that's, a... that's just like an ice dagger in my heart. <laughs> that's because that's we, we don't talk. That's because you don't talk to the person during the film. No, indeed. I completely agree. Anyway, so, um, sorry, I interrupted there. So where would you put this compared to Crimson Peak? Because for some reason, this just really reminded me of Crimson Peak in terms of the feel of it, but also in terms of the audience reaction to it. I think I preferred Crimson Peak to this, though I feel compelled to rewatch this in a way that I didn't necessarily at the time with Crimson Peak. Interesting. I would strongly recommend seeing it on a big screen. One of the things that I liked about the movie was that Del Toro always puts a bit of violence in his movies that guarantees it's going to be a 15 at least. And there are brief bits of violence in this movie that are up there with any of the wince-inducing violence of his other movie. I would just say bone fragment in the knuckle. Hmm. (laughs) And it's like, Jesus. And that's another thing that reminded me of Crimson Peak, which is a very beautiful looking ghost story. But every now and again, you get a bit of violence that is like, heavens, that was strong. Which is not to put people off because I don't, it's not gratuitous, it's justified. But yeah, it's a film for grown-ups. And you know um, what Del Toro's next movie is? Which is coming out this year, right? Yeah. Pinocchio, his animated tale of that. Well, yeah, well, yeah sorry, his live action, isn't it? I thought it was animated. Is it live action? I think it's live action. Oh. 
Oh no, sorry, I'm I'm completely wrong. It is it's stop motion. Blimey. That's what I thought, yeah. Sorry, I was gonna say I oh. think it's a stop motion one. I mean the last person to do a live action Pinocchio was Roberto Benini, wasn't it? And Back in um, twenty nineteen. Yeah. But didn't he do an earlier version of it that completely failed where he played Pinocchio? Roberto Benini. I don't know off the top of my head. I'm now imagining Roberto Benini as Pinocchio, a young Roberto Benini as Pinocchio, and that is the stuff of nightmares. Let me just quickly look that up. Yes, it's really weird. Well, after he won the Oscar for Life is Beautiful, which is a film that <laughs> I have some issues with, he, in 2002, directed and wrote and starred in as Pinocchio when he was in his 40s, I think, a live-action version of Pinocchio. And it flopped so hard that it really, really damaged his career. For some reason, 17 years later, he was allowed to do another version of Pinocchio in which he plays Geppetto. It's directed by Matteo Garoni, which, who I think did Gamora? Yes. Yeah, and he also did Tale of Tales. So actually, I'm quite interested in seeing that version. But again, that just kind of came and went. So I think that any live-action version of Pinocchio is just doomed but i'd be very interested to see a stop motion take on it directed by del toro which i yeah believe is coming out this year right so we're going to get two of his films in one year and again the cast for his pinocchio is great it's got ewan mcgregor as the cricket as well jiminy apparently here is just the talking cricket david bradley as geppetto which is interesting because you just immediately assume richard jenkins yeah maybe but i do like david bradley who yeah most recently was seen in season three of Afterlife as um, Ricky Gervais' dad. Hmm. Yeah. And you got Ron Perlman back in it as well, Tilda Swinton, Christoph Waltz, Tim Blake Nelson, John Turturro, Bern Gorman, who of course has worked with Del Toro before, Finn Wolfhard. Who plays Pinocchio then? An unknown. Gregory Mann? Oh yeah, Gregory Mann. Hmm, okay. Well, yeah, so that'll be interesting. I think that... Which Mann as a surname for your actor who's playing Pinocchio feels very on the nose. Yes, it could only be more if it was Gregory Boy. Greg, Gregory, Gregory Real Boy. Gregory Real Boy. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, so apparently that's coming out sometime in 2022. So, yes, I'm looking forward to that. It'll be interesting to see what a stop-motion animated Del Toro film is like, because I've, I think he's produced a few in the past, but I don't think he's actually directed one that I can think of. No, I nor me. Okay, then. Anything else to say about Nightmare Alley? I'm glad it was up your night... Uh, nope, nope, yeah. nothing. Nope, nothing. Uh, I, I that does not work. That doesn't work. Well, I'm glad it was up my Nightmare Alley as well. <laughs> just... And, um, yeah, I would just strongly recommend everyone try and make time to see this on a big screen because, one you will see one of the most visually striking films of the year. Two, I think you're going to see just, for my money, is one of the best films of the year. If there are 10 films that are better than this, and this gets into my um, 11 to 20, then oh, what a year we have in store. Hmm. And also, yeah, I think this is the kind of film that should be supported at theatrical, even though it cost 60 million, so it's not an indie movie. But to your point, what Scorsese said, if we don't support these here, then lesser versions of this sort of film are just going to go straight to Netflix and other streaming platforms and just become harder to find. So, yeah, I would recommend it. And is it kind of a qualified recommendation from you? Yeah, it's a qualified recommendation. I always recommend a Guillermo del Toro film. So it's never going to be anything less than worth seeing. 
yes, he rarely disappoints. I'm, in fact, I don't think he's ever disappointed, other than maybe Pacific Rim, which I, when I saw the trailer, said, stop the contest now, the film of the year is here. Then saw the film and it was like, oh, it's not quite as good as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> uh, well, shall we do plugs before signing off? Yes. Um, well, you can find my writing online at of all the film sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace. And if people would like to hear anything about the classic movie Highlander, where could they hear that? <laughs> if you've got a, an interest in the movie Highlander, we uh, we have another podcast we do called Another Time McLeod, which is a scene-by-scene analysis, just general chat. We have some, we have some lovely, lovely people on as guests uh, about the movie Highlander. And you can find that wherever you're listening to this. The podcast is called Another Time McLeod. And follow. Uh, you can also follow it on Twitter at McLeodTime. Excellent. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. You can find my writing at electric-shadows.com, at filmstories.co.uk. I recently wrote something about how sci-fi films from the past seem to have predicted where we are now. Also, you can find my writing at lovehorror.co.uk. And if you want to follow this podcast, then you can on Twitter at MovieRobcast. And if you like what you hear and would like to rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcast, please do. It is always appreciated and it helps the podcast. Until next time, thank you very much, Rob. And thank you very much. And we will talk to you again very, very soon. If you displease the right people, the world closes in on you very, very fast. 